Please take out your copies of the scriptures and turn in them to John chapter 6. This morning we're going to be in verses 16 through 21. John chapter 6, 16 through 21. You can find it on page 891 in the Pew Bible. Last week, we started a new section in the Gospel of John. This book that is all about the good news of the person and work of Jesus, who he is, and what he has come to do. And then the call for us to respond by believing in him based upon this testimony, this revelation. And then in believing in him to find life. And we saw last week in great detail how that's what this whole very long section of John is about. Life. We've seen the sign. Jesus supernaturally multiplies the bread and feeds the multitude. Bread is life. The significance of the sign is simple. Jesus is life. And I belabored the point last week that John gives little attention to the sign itself. We want spectacle. We want show. John gives us short and simple. He gives us the barest description of this amazing occurrence, devoting to it only 15 short verses. But then he's about to go on and give to us 50 verses of teaching as Jesus explains the significance of what it is that he has just done. That's where we're headed. We're going to give significant attention to that teaching. It is rich and robust. It is deep and dense. It will take some time. But something interesting happens first. John does something interesting first. Instead of going straight from sign of bread to explanation of the sign of bread, Jesus as the bread, John first inserts this short little six-verse aside, and it raises a question. Why? Why is this here? Why the feeding of the 5,000 with bread, then this aside, this interruption, and then back to the discourse on the bread of life, unpacking and explaining the feeding of the 5,000? We'll be chewing on that. We want to try to answer that question this morning. We have borrowed from the Transformers some time back. More than meets the eye. All right, it's the Transformers saying. Jesus is much more than meets the eye. This story about Jesus is much more than meets the eye. You think you know it. Jesus walks on water. Well, that's pretty neat. Let's keep moving. Well, hold on. Like, don't, don't let that prevent you from really hearing and seeing this story. Because this is here for a very specific reason. And I think it's a very specific reason that could be a very big help to many of you as it has been for me. Last week, we talked much about sovereignty. This week, we're going to talk much about storms. God's sovereignty, life's storms. And so we often wonder, well, how do the two relate? How can God be so sovereign and yet life be so full of storms? Because it is. Let's be honest. The line from the Princess Bride is not that far off. Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. Or in the context of our text today, storms. Life is storms, church. Anyone who says differently is selling something. You either just came out of one, you're in one right now, or one is coming soon. Why is that? And what do we do with that? And what does God have to do with that? Let's see, because I think there's potentially great comfort to be found in this short story. Uh, some of you had a hard day yesterday. Some of you had a hard week this week. Some a hard month. Some it feels like a hard year. Maybe a hard life, even. Life is storms. Well, allow God's word to speak to you in the midst of that storm this morning. There's great help to be found here in this text's brutal honesty and its beautiful Theology. It is both gritty and gracious. And we're going to walk through it seeking truth, the truth that saves and sanctifies, the truth that comforts under five headings. First, point number one, we're going to see and establish the fact that storms will come. That shouldn't be that difficult or that controversial. But second, we need to see and understand ultimately from where those storms come. Point number two, Christ sins. And sends us into the storms. I will do my best to make that case biblically. If it's biblical, you have to believe it. It doesn't matter if you like it or not. But my goal is to hopefully help you see how point two is actually such good news. And then point number three. The news gets even better. Christ is with us in the storms. 
And why is that good news? Oh, because of who he is, the main point of the text. This is the comfort. Christ is the sovereign God over all, including storms. Which means application time at the end, point number five. If all that is true, then this follows. Be glad and do not fear. So that's, that's what we're doing. That's, that's the goal for these next couple of minutes. Let's read the text. Let's look for comfort in the storm. And the comfort is, of course, found only in Christ. So our goal here is to look at him and to listen to him. John chapter 6, starting in verse 16. Jesus has just fed the 5,000. What happens next? Pay attention. This is what God wants to say to you today. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Let's stop there and pray and ask God's help um, as we go forward. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word that is life. We thank you for the word that is the means through which you commune with us and communicate to us, save us, challenge us, correct us, shape us, encourage us, comfort us. Father, we ask that you would do all of those things and more here in this time. I cannot do those things, um, but you are more than capable of doing those things through your word. So we ask for your help. We confess that we believe in the Holy Spirit. We confess that apart from you, we can do nothing. So please, Lord, help the preaching of your word and help the hearing of your word. Help us, Father, find great comfort. Uh, Comfort stormy souls here this morning um, through this wonderful word. And we ask and we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Point number one, storms will come. I probably don't need to spend any time trying to convince you of this fact, but we do need to consider it briefly. We do need to make sure that we are aware of and resistant to those who would argue otherwise. There's a whole system of theology out there that either implicitly or often quite explicitly argues the opposite. It argues that the Christian life is the victorious life. It argues that God wants and exists to make you healthy, wealthy, and happy. If you just have a little faith and give me a little bit of money also, right? Implied in all this is that following Jesus makes life easier. Following Jesus makes life less stormy. Follow Jesus and he will give you your best life now. Try telling that to the apostles in this story. No, we know that this health and wealth, name it and claim it, uh, garbage is absurd. We understand the appeal. We are often implicitly drawn to it ourselves, but we understand that it's absolutely false and utterly empty. Again, my general preacher rule. If a preacher is on TV, don't listen to him. Right? That's just a pretty safe rule. If he's on TBN, definitely don't listen to him. We know better. We know that storms will come. Storms are the norm. We see that starting in verse 16. Don't forget where the disciples have been and what they have been doing. They have been on top of a mountain, literally and metaphorically. Verse 3, Jesus went up on a mountain and sat down with his disciples. The crowd came and Jesus supernaturally fed that crowd of upwards of 20,000 people. And he kindly included and used the disciples in that supernatural feeding. In Mark 6.41, we're specifically told that Jesus blessed and broke the loaves and then gave them to the disciples to give to the crowd. So they have witnessed a miracle. They have held the miracle bread in their hands. They probably ate some of the miracle bread themselves. They were privileged to bless and serve and feed thousands as Jesus' right-hand men. So they have gone from the highest of highs, now pretty immediately, to the lowest of lows. Metaphorically, well, and geographically, they were up on a mountain. Now they have gone down to the sea, right? the Sea of Galilee. This is almost 700 feet below sea level. Melissa and I got to visit the Badwater Basin in Death Valley this summer. That's the lowest point in North America. That's less than 300 feet below sea level. This is twice as low as that. So the Sea of Galilee is very low, 
And it's actually surrounded pretty closely by pretty high mountains. And it's that big difference, that rapid elevation change that creates the perfect conditions for some pretty wicked storms on the sea. Cool, high air rushes down the mountains, meets the warm, wet air at the sea, and storms are the result. That's the situation in which the disciples now find themselves. Look at verse 17. They got into a boat. They started back west across the sea. It was dark, and key point here, Jesus was not with them. I mean, hold on to that fact. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever felt that, that Jesus was not with you in the storms? No presence, only absence. You have felt that. We'll come back to that. Verse 18, the sea became rough because a a strong wind was blowing. Literally, in the Greek, it says the sea was stirred up or agitated because of the wind. And in the Greek, it says the wind, and then it has the adjective mega. It literally says the, the mega wind, an exceeding great wild wind. And so the storm has come. And while, yes, this is obviously a literal windstorm, it's also a pretty good picture of whatever kind of storms blow into our lives and upset and unsettle things. Whatever it is that comes into our lives and brings with it hardship and suffering, difficulty and danger, fear and frustration, storms will come. That's life in a fallen world. And that's the Christian life in a fallen world. Becoming a Christian does nothing to spare us From that fact. Becoming a Christian does nothing to spare us from the storms. In fact, as I'm about to argue, becoming a Christian more than likely sends us into more storms. And so we've got to start with this fact first. Expectations are everything. If you expect a life of comfort and ease, when reality inevitably hits you in the face, it can be devastating. But if you expect a life of trial and difficulty, of storms, then when reality inevitably hits you in the face... Well, you're more ready and prepared for it. Yeah, that's why Scripture's brutal honesty is so helpful. Right, consider a few passages. Ten chapters from here, in John 16, verse 33, Jesus tells us, In the world you will have tribulation, or trouble, or some translations go with suffering. In other words, you will have storms. Not won't, not even may, you will Acts 14, 22, Paul says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So no tribulations, no entering the kingdom. We've been working through Romans chapter 5, where Paul says in verse 3 that we rejoice in our sufferings. No, we don't. Uh, But we're supposed to. The sufferings that Paul expects and assumes. We read in James chapter 1, count it all joy. My brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James says, when you meet trials. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. In this you rejoice. Have you ever noticed how often Scripture connects joy and suffering? It happens a lot. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We should all ask and honestly answer the question of ourselves, do we find our faith more precious than gold? Is this the thing that is more precious to us than anything else we possess? More Peter, chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He said, in Scripture, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, don't be surprised. And yet, how often are we surprised when storm comes? What? what? What's going on here? I can't, I can't believe this. No, Peter says, don't be surprised. He has specifically told us and prepared us to expect the storms. The uniform testimony of Scripture from beginning to end is that storms will come. Okay, so do you believe this? Do you expect this? That this is part and parcel of life? I mean, just, look, just look at the last two years, right? How many of us, all of us, have been surprised by the, the fiery trial? Hey, why is that? Peter says, do not be surprised. 
Everyone's talking about getting back to normal life. What if this is normal life? What if the storms are normal life? Scripture is clear. Storms will come. And this storm has come for the disciples. And Scripture is equally clear that this storm has come for the disciples from Christ. So point number one, not a lot to disagree about. Here we go. Point number two, Christ sends and sends us into the storms. Back to the text. And I think this fact is very clear in verses 19 and 20. But I want to save those for point number four. That's the main point of this story. So we will see this point further bolstered in point four. But first, let's just consider contextually what we've learned about Christ up until this point. Remember, that's what this whole book is about. The revelation of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. Everything is about that and part of that revelation. And so on this very day, in verse 11, we have already seen Christ miraculously multiply the bread, demonstrating in, his, in part his power over nature. This wasn't some illusion. There were five little loaves of bread, and then all of a sudden there are thousands of little loaves of bread. You know, I've always wondered about this. I am no scientist, so bear with my naivety. But the first law of thermodynamics, the law of the conservation of energy, says that energy can be neither created nor destroyed. I've always wondered, what's Jesus doing here? Right? Is he somehow supernaturally, temporarily suspending that? Or is he somehow in some way drawing energy from somewhere else and changing it here into matter? I have no idea. Something is happening because something is being brought into existence that was not there before. So I don't know how he did it, but I know that he can because of chapter 1, verse 3. All things were made through him. So John starts off by affirming that this Jesus is the creator God of all. He is the one who spoke energy and matter into existence in the first place. Therefore, he is the one who is able and has the authority to do with it what he wants. The point is, He is God, and thus he is sovereign over nature. And storms are part of nature. He demonstrates this also back in chapter 5 as he heals and makes whole the crippled and lame man. In chapter 4, in his interacting with the Samaritan woman, we saw his supernatural, omniscient knowledge. She has said in verse 29, Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. So he is God over all, therefore he knows all. And so just from these basic facts revealed in these three chapters of John, we know that he's sovereign over the storm. And we know that he knows that this storm is coming. He is God, after all. But consider that also then in light of the further information we get from Matthew chapter 14 and Mark chapter 6. John is giving us a very brief account of this. And John does that to focus on the main thing, what Christ is revealing about himself. But both Matthew and Mark give us a little bit more detail. It's only in Matthew, for example, that we get the account right after this of Peter's walking on the water, of Peter's little faith and and of Christ's rescue. That's during this storm. John just leaves that whole thing out. John's focus is on Christ. But for now... Note that both Matthew and Mark in Matthew 14.22 and Mark 6.45 give us more details about why the disciples are heading out in a boat without Jesus. Matthew 14.22 says that Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him. And the Greek is a lot stronger than that. Literally, it says he compelled them or he forced them. If you're following along in the King James, it says he constrained them. Jesus sent them away. And he sent them away without him. And he sent them away without him into the storm. I just don't see how there's any way around this basic fact. He's God, sovereign over nature. He's God, he's omniscient, right? He he knows what he's doing. He knows where they are headed and he sends them. And so I'm going to argue for this and defend it further in point four. But for now, let's just assume that that's the case. Like just accept with me for now, the idea that it was specifically Christ that sent the disciples away and he sent them away specifically knowing that he was sending them into this storm. And let's just assume for now that we can rightly apply that to our own circumstances and our own storms. Storms will come and they have for you Whatever that storm is, no matter how big or small, right? you may be facing a storm of sickness, 
a relational storm, a work or financial storm, or just a general fear, anxiety, doubt, darkness, internal spiritual storm that nobody else knows about. We could spend the whole day just going around this room and sharing with one another the various storms that we are facing right now or have faced recently, and some of them have been significant and severe. And if this is correct, if this is a faithful application of the truth at this point, then all those storms, yours and mine, ultimately sent by God. Now, this may make us uncomfortable. Again, further defense to come. Just consider the book of Job if you're struggling with this, right? It couldn't be clearer. Satan could do nothing to Job without God's permission. And Job understood this. Job understood from where this severest of storms ultimately came. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He is talking about all of his wealth and all of his money and all of his children. And what I want to do, and what I'm probably going to fail somewhat to do, is to convince you of the goodness of this truth. Is to convince you of how much you need this truth. And of how much comfort is to be found in this truth. Storms will come, and they have. It cannot be denied. And so you really only have two options. They are either in God's control, or they are out of God's control. They are either coming from God, or they are coming from someone else. And this second option here is terrifying. There is no hope. For us in the storms that do come, if they do not come from him, and if they are not controlled by him. And so if Christ is sovereign over the storms, if he is specifically the one that sends us into the storms, as he does the disciples here, the the question is, why? Why is that? And the answer, the wonderful answer, in full would require much time and many sermons. But the main thing, the big idea that I want you to get, the thing we need transformed about our understanding of storms and suffering and difficulty is that he sends them and he sends us into them because he loves us. That's specifically why, because he loves us. This was very, it was very impactful for me. It stuck in my brain for years. Uh, it was 2000, what year was Julia born? 2010? Is Julia born in 2010? Our niece. Um, my brother-in-law, Jeff and Trish, my sister, they were moving. They were planning a church. They were having a baby. Um, and they just had a miserable stretch. Everything fell apart. And they went to their pastor to talk with him. And the first thing he said to them was, And God must really love you. Right? And we think, oh, oh, oh. They found wonderful comfort in this pastor's counsel. Christian, God sends you storms because he loves you. I asked earlier if you believe that your faith is the most valuable thing that you possess. If you believe that Christ, uh, that the Christ that your faith connects you to is the most valuable thing that you possess. And that's what 1 Peter tells us. That's why and how we can actually rejoice in trials. Because in and through them, our faith the most eternally valuable thing we possess is tested and tried and found genuine. And Peter says it thus then results in praise and honor and glory. And that, by the way, is your praise and honor and glory. He's talking about your glorification. That's life eternal. Full, complete, perfectly fulfilling, perfectly satisfying, never-ending, always improving life. And that life, that life to come, is ultimately and always what God is working towards in this life. We just saw up in verse 6 that Jesus desired to to test and to try his disciples. This is no different. This is a trial by water, if you will. But God's trying of his people is always a kindness and a grace. God's trying always results in our blessing. Why specifically did Christ send the disciples away in this instance? You know, it's hard to say for sure, but Matthew and Mark are both very clear, pretty clear. They use immediately, immediately. They use this, there's this urgency and this force with which Christ sends the disciples away. Why would he maybe immediately and urgently send them away? I think it's most likely because of John chapter 6, verse 15. I think it's most likely because of what we just read before this story. Remember, the crowd has been, this, has been this building frenzy and desire to take and to make Christ king by force. Uh, what do you have when you have a charismatic figure who can miraculously feed, miraculously feed people and then you have 5,000 men following him? What do you have there? You have an army, right? You have a general and an army. 
And so their desire is to take and make him king. And it would have probably been difficult for the disciples not to get caught up in that. We know how slow they were to get things and how limited their understanding of Christ was. We know of their arguments over who was the greatest. We know of the request for James and John to sit at Jesus' right and left hand. We know that they, like us, wanted power and prestige and significance. We know that they, like us, want their kingdom to come and their will to be done. I think, most likely, that Christ is removing them from that situation. He is protecting them from that. He sends them away, and then he deals with the crowds, we're told in the other Gospels. He's protecting them from that error. He's confronting and correcting their potential pride. And, oh, I don't know about you, but how much my heart is still plagued by the poison of pride. And so he's protecting them from that, and then he brings them into the valley, into the heart of the sea, into the storm, because he loves them. And because he is perfectly committed to working for their ultimate good. Christ sends, and then he sends us into the storms. And then we read in the end of verse 17, it was now dark. Again, is there, is there metaphorical, symbolic significance there? I don't know, I'm not sure. Maybe, some people think there is. But here's what is clear. Jesus had not yet come to them. And so, again, everything I've just said, I believe is biblical and true. It doesn't mean that it's easy. And so I know that some of you right now are probably still smack dab in the middle of verse 17. Right? I'm sure some of you are wondering right now, where is Jesus? Where is God? Theo's like, he has not come. Point number three, Christ is with us in the storms. This is pretty neat, I think. Christ had not yet come to them. Does that mean that Christ was absent from them? Well, not at all. Listen to this. This is pretty cool. This is Mark's account of the scene. Listen to Mark chapter 6, verse 45. What did Jesus do after he sends them away, removes them from this chaotic scene, then dismisses the crowd? Mark 6, 45 says, he went up on the mountain to pray. I think it's pretty likely that he's praying for them. I mean, at least in part. He's praying for his disciples. Verse 47 of Mark 6 then relays that they were out on the sea while he was alone on the land. And then catch this, verse 48, and he saw that they were making headway painfully. So Mark reveals to us that Jesus, I think, is both praying for them and watching them. It's a beautiful picture. He is elevated. He's on the land, raised up. It doesn't tell us anything about an actual storm or, or clouds or rain. This is a, a windstorm is all we really see. So he can see them. He's watching them. And it's more than likely that he is praying for them. Which means, if that's true, and he is the God that we've already discussed, that means the disciples in total darkness, buffeted by the winds, overwhelmed by the waves, things entirely out of their control, unable to do anything to help themselves, were nevertheless... Perfectly and entirely safe. And you, Christian, in total darkness, buffeted by the winds, overwhelmed by the waves, things entirely out of your control, unable to do anything to help yourself, are nevertheless perfectly and entirely and ultimately safe. Always. No matter your circumstances. No matter your storm. Because he is watching. Always. And he is praying. Always. Jesus, uh, BJ, BJ just walked us through the intercession of Christ. Right? We, we just read in the confession of Christ interceding for us and praying for us always. And so here he prays for them, he watches them, and then he comes to them. Back to John 6, verse 19. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Verse 20. Wonderful verse 20. Christian, hear this. This is Christ's word to you as well. It is I. Do not be afraid. You see, Christ is with us in the storms. Christ is present in the midst of our problems. Yes, he sends the storms, but he himself comes with the storms. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And remember, that's the whole point of everything. This is what life and reality is all about. God with us. That's what you were created for, and that's what Christ has come to restore. This is why we annoy you with covenant, because this is what covenant is about. This is how God is with us. Covenant. I will be your God, and you will be my people. I will be with you. And that's life, and that is your only comfort in life 
and death. Our second point last week was to look to Jesus to provide what you need. Here is what you need. He is what you need. His presence is his provision. Hear again and be comforted by Isaiah 43, which Pastor Mike read for us earlier. It's such a wonderful passage. It starts off, fear not. Why not? For I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Verse 4, this is wonderful, church. You are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. Verse 5 again, fear not, for I am with you. Again, what a word from the Lord to his people. He says, you are precious honored and loved by God himself. You have nothing to fear, for he has named you, called you, redeemed you. Christ is with us. And listen, this is the answer to our previous question. This is the answer to the why he sends the storms questions. It's because he loves us. And it's because he knows us. He knows how prone we are to love any and everything but But he knows that he is life. He knows that we will find what we're looking for only in him. That we will find our identity, our meaning, fulfillment, joy, pleasure, everything only in him. But since we remain so prone to look for those things elsewhere, he is so kind to send us the storms that remove those things from us and teach us that he is what we want and that he is what we need. Storms are necessary only because of sin. No sin no storms. No, that does not mean that all of our storms are directly caused by our sin. I'm not, I'm not saying that. Don't hear me saying that. But ultimately, storms only exist because sin exists. I don't know about you, but I am a great sinner. My heart is so fickle and frail. It is so easily amused and so easily confused. It is so foolish to look for life in the things of the world. And so I desperately need help. And my God is gracious to give that help. Even though it's sometimes difficult and sometimes painful, I can know that it's for my ultimate good because it drives me to my gracious God. Yes, there are storms, and yes, they are hard. And I never want to minimize that or make light of that, but we must consider the storms in light of eternity. We must consider them in light of God's promise to work them for good. And we must then face them intentionally aware that they are from him, but that he is with us in them and that he will not and he cannot fail us because he is God and because he is so good and because he is so kind. He is the good shepherd. I will fear no evil. Why not? For you are with me. Do you know and believe that God is with you always? I'm not asking what you feel. Don't particularly care about what you feel. Sometimes... Many times you won't feel it. I'm asking, do you know it? I'm asking not about your feelings, but about your faith. That gift of God, that trustful belief that in spite of the darkness, in spite of the difficulty, in spite of the storm, in spite of the suffering, that he's there and that he's good. And he's promised us that. He has promised us that again and again and again in his word. And so the question is, do you trust him? Christ is with us in the storms. He sends the storms to the disciples, and then he comes to the disciples. But we're not done yet. It actually gets even better. Point number four, the main point. This is why the story is here. Christ is the sovereign God over all, even the storms. Look back at verse 19. They saw Jesus walking on the sea. Again, why? This is like, I know, this is like a parlor trick. If I could do this, yes, I would just be going around, walking around on the sea. Like, look, look what I can do. Right? This, this is pretty cool. Is that what Jesus is doing? Like, of course not. Right? We have another sign here. I think it's the fifth. I think this is the fifth sign. And signs in John, remember, have significance. What Jesus does is always revealing something about who Jesus is. And this one is big. John has told us from the beginning who Jesus is. Well, his disciples don't yet really understand it and know it in the course of the story. Uh, They're starting to understand it here. 
Remember, they had probably been caught up in the crowd's frenzied desire to make Jesus a political king. Jesus rejects that. Jesus withdraws from the crowds, but he comes to his disciples. And he kindly says to them here, let me show you who I really am. Let me show you how much bigger and better I am than some military leader or some political savior. Let me show you that I am none other than God himself. Previous point, Christ is with us, the eminence of God. This point, Christ is the sovereign God of all, the transcendence of God. And they're both, again, beautifully coming together in the person of Christ. Who is it that can walk on the waves? Right? Who can still raging storms? Only God. Remember last week we saw that John is couching all of this in the terms of the Exodus. He mentions Moses at the end of chapter 5. Then we see Jesus up on a mountain. Then Jesus miraculously feeds the people with bread. And now here we have a perilous crossing through or this time on the sea. In Psalm 77, Asaph is meditating upon that exodus, God's deliverance of his people. And he says, you with your arm redeemed your people. Same thing we saw in Isaiah 43. And then he goes on though. He says, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. And here we have Jesus making his way through the sea, his, his footprints on the great waters. Job chapter 9 verse 8 declares that God is the one who tramples on the waves. And here we see Jesus nonchalantly trampling on the waves. And then in verse 20, back to John 6, he speaks to them. Words are revelation. And these could be particularly revealing words. Because in the Greek, Jesus literally says, I am. Ego I mean. And there is great debate over the significance of these words among people who are far smarter than I am. So I don't want to speak definitively where there is disagreement. But in Exodus 3.14, when God reveals himself, when he reveals his name to Moses, he reveals himself as Yahweh, as I am. And so then here we are in a story couched in the context of the Exodus. And here we have Jesus saying in the Greek, I am. Plus, there's no predicate nominative. Now you're convinced. Now you're like, oh, there's no predicate nominative. Of course. No. What's a predicate nominative? That's the part that completes a linking verb. It's what comes after. So if you look down at verse 35, you'll see Jesus say, I am, ego I me, the bread of life. The bread of life is the predicate nominative. In verse 20, there, there isn't one. Jesus just says, I am period. Something is supposed to come after it. It doesn't. I am. And so I think there's debate, but I think he is further revealing himself to his disciples as God himself. I am and I am with you. And so he's both God overall and God with his people. And it is this that further explains point Two, this is why the storms have to ultimately come from him because he is God and everything ultimately comes from him. Pastor Mike just prayed this beautifully in our pastoral prayer. God is the one who has already declared the end from the beginning. Isaiah 46, 10. I've been obsessed with Psalm 139 for a long time. Now throw yourselves into that psalm. Where shall I go? from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? Everywhere you are there. You are with me. You formed me. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, on and on and on. But for now, verse 16. In his books were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Every day. Every one of them. Written by him ahead of time. Sunny days. Stormy days. All these days, ultimately, from his gracious, fatherly hand. God stands directly or indirectly behind all that comes to pass, including all the storms. He does not and he cannot do evil, but our only hope is that he does ordain it and use it and then overrule it to bring about amazing good. And Jesus is revealing himself to us here as the God that is big enough to do that. 
In part, what the Reformation was, was the discovery of the bigness of God and the glory of God. Christ is revealing himself here as that God. And so often, I don't know about you, but so often for me, my circumstances weigh, loom way too large and my Christ way too small. Don't allow your circumstances to crowd out your Christ. Don't focus on them. Focus on him. Don't judge God's opinion of you based upon the ease or the difficulty of your current circumstances. What if the very thing that you are reading as an indication that God doesn't love you or doesn't care about you is the exact thing that he is using to reveal to you how much he does love you and how much he does care about you? I don't discipline other people's children, but I discipline my children because I love them and because they're mine and because I exist for their good. What, are you, what circumstances that God brings into your life are you looking at to maybe say, oh, look, he does, he, he's not good, he, he doesn't care? What if those things are actually the proof that he does, that he's after you and that he's working on you and that he's working for your good? Listen, you cannot and you will not be able to make any sense out of the Christian life apart from eternity. It doesn't make any sense without spiritual realities and without eternity. We often forget eternity. God never does. We often read our circumstances apart from eternity. God never does. Eternity changes everything. And that is what God is working for and toward. Discouragement then could always eventually and ultimately lead us to encouragement because we now know this God. And we know what he is doing. And because he is God, you can know that what he is doing, if you are his, is always better than what you think he should be doing. He is always wiser and always better than than silly me. John Newton writes, It is indeed natural for us to wish and to plan, and it is merciful for the Lord to disappoint our plans and to cross our wishes. Because his plans are perfect. And mine are so often pridefully pathetic. His are always focused on eternity. Mine are so often focused on right now, immediacy. See, you need to know and fight to believe that God has never treated you unfairly. It's impossible for him to do that because he's God and he's perfectly just. That he has never done you wrong. That he has done nothing or brought nothing into your life that was not for your ultimate good. I love the hymn of Newton's friend, William Cooper. God moves in a mysterious way. There's a great line kind of related to our story. God moves in a mysterious way. God moves in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the seas and rides upon the storm. There's, there's Christ, the beautiful picture. But then listen to this line. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. I love that line. See, what looks to be frowning and difficult and hard actually in reality is kind and gracious and good. See, that's the storms. Always ultimately from him, his providence ordains and sustains and guides and directs everything. But for those who are his, there was always a smiling fatherly face behind those storms as he works them for ultimate good. And so what J.C. Ryle writes about the disciples here applies to all of us who are his. He writes this, Ryle says this, Christ, he's talking about the storm. He says, Christ knew it, Christ appointed it, and Christ was working it for their good. And then he applies. He says, many of the things which now frighten Christians and fill them with anxiety would cease to frighten them if they would endeavor to see the Lord Jesus in all, ordering every providence and overruling everything so that not a hair falls to the ground without him. They are happy who can hear his voice through the thickest clouds and darkness and above the loudest winds and storms saying, it is I, be not afraid. That's beautifully put. And if this is who Jesus really is, then your application, point number five, necessarily follows. Be glad and do not fear. Look at verse 21. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Is that another miracle? Did they transport? Again, I, I don't know. The point is that they were safely brought through because Christ was with him. So Christ says, I am, I am with you. Therefore, do not fear. And the result is that they are glad. 
Right? The presence of Christ gladdens the people of Christ. The presence of Christ gives peace to the people of Christ. This is the great calm that Christ brings. This is the peace of his presence. When Christ comes, all is calm. Christ's powerful, protective, peaceful presence is what you want and what you need. Be glad and do not fear. We just sang, I love that hymn, Be Still My Soul. Be still my soul, the wind, waves and winds still know the voice that calmed their fury long ago. Church, there's nothing better than a still soul. A soul at peace, a soul at rest. And my, my soul is still often so sadly so stormy, right? As, as I war against sin and struggle and doubt and fear. I had a bad day recently, and my time in the Word the next morning had me in Luke 12. And how God ministered to my soul through Luke 12. Verse 22, do not be anxious about your life. Verse 25, you can't even add an hour to your life by being anxious. Verse 29, do not be worried. Verse 31, seek His kingdom and all these things, everything else, will be added. Catch this one. Verse 32. Have you ever considered this? Again, fear not. Why not? It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That's amazing. Fear not. Why? Because God is kind and glad to give you His kingdom. That's amazing. Earlier in that same chapter, he says, Do not fear man. Verse 5. He says, Fear God who has authority to cast into hell. Fear him. But then it goes on in verse 7. Do not fear, for you are of more value to him than many sparrows. See, if we truly feared him, we would truly fear not. Because he is the God revealed here in our passage. And he is so good to his weak and worried children. He's with us. And he commands us again and again and again. The most frequent command in Scripture, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear, for I am with you. This is what Jesus wants his disciples to know in a special way. And it is actually the presence of the storm that makes his presence in the storm and then his deliverance through the storm all the better. And I think that he wants them to know this here now because he's about to launch into some hard teachings. And those hard teachings, we're going to see, are going to drive many away from Christ. But not the disciples. Why not? Well, in part, I believe, because of this. In part, I believe, because of this gracious revelation of his person and his power and his presence. They're going to hear hard things, and they're going to say, oh, but we just saw him walking on the seas and coming to us and comforting us. So we're going to, we're going to trust this one. And so the question is, do we know him as he reveals himself to us here? As he's about to reveal himself in great detail as the bread of life. The one who gives life by giving his own life. Because the most amazing revelation is still to come. We can trust him in our storms because he, has, he himself has already entered into the storm. When he took our sin and took our place and took the wrath of God that we deserved. He died the death that we deserved. That's the gospel, the good news. That's why you can trust him in the earthly storms because he has already spared you from the eternal storm. He has shown you definitively who he is and how good he is. And so read everything through the lens of the cross. Evaluate all your circumstances in light of the cross. Because of that cross, you can be glad and not fear no matter what you face. And so I want to close with the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, the Heidelberg Catechism is one of the most pastoral and comforting and encouraging of these great Reformation documents, right? It's, it's Reformation Day, so let's, let's read something coming out of that Reformation. Uh, this is the Heidelberg Catechism, and it's so wonderfully encouraging. Listen to question 26. Talking about, um, it, just, it says, What do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father, Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth? I think we just kind of quote that unthinkingly. Listen to this answer. I believe that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and everything in them, who still upholds and rules them by his eternal counsel and providence, is my God and Father because of Christ the Son. I trust God so much that I do not doubt that he will provide whatever I need for body 
and soul. And that he will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends upon me in this sad world. God is able to do this because he is almighty. And he desires to do this because he is my faithful father. Question 27, last thing. What do you understand by the providence of God? Again, he just counseled and encouraged with the sovereignty and providence of God. What do you understand by the providence of God? Answer, the almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. You see, you combine those together, and we find wonderful comfort there as God's children. It starts off, Father, Father, Father. It says, know that everything comes from and by his fatherly hand. And that as a good father, he will provide whatever you need. And as a good father who is also the God overall, he will turn to good whatever adversity or storm he sends. And so he is a faithful father. He is God overall and he is with us. Therefore, no matter your circumstances, you can be glad and not fear because of Christ. So let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for its great beauty. Thank you for the great richness, the great comfort of the truths that are revealed there. We thank you that it is in them that we find this Christ, who is so wonderfully good, whom we could have never created, never imagined, never come up with. Father, this Christ who is both so big and yet so near, who is God and yet who is God uh, with his sinful, weak people. Father, we thank you for the reminder of that here in this story as Christ sends the disciples into the storms and yet comes to be with them and to encourage them and to reveal himself to them. Father, I pray that we would believe that we find only, that we will find comfort only in the revelation of who you are. And so that in whatever storms it is that we are facing right now, whatever hard and difficult circumstances that are weighing us down and that are uh, threatening our souls and that are trying to crowd out everything that we believe, Father, help us to see and to fix our eyes on the Christ who is with us in those storms. The Christ who is so much bigger than the storms. So much bigger than he can actually use them and take them and overrule them and turn them all for our ultimate good. Father, help us to believe that that ultimate good is you and that it is knowing you, loving you and being like you and being with you for all eternity. Father, help us to know that you are so big and so good that you are and can do that in every situation that comes into our lives. And so help us to trust you. Father, help us to find great gladness and rest and peace in the Lord. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ this morning that they would not fear and that they would know that you are with them. And we ask and we pray all this only in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.